There are many odd things that we say in AA that confuse people. I can recall when I first come, when reference was made to the fact that you have to die to live. I couldn't quite understand that. And then I recall once when I woke up in an abandoned automobile in Chicago and I had been holed up there overnight, feeling how you and I feel when we wake up, confused and bewildered, and I saw a big billboard sign hanging above Wacker Drive, and it said, Going East, Fly Northwest, and I couldn't figure that out. And I know a lot of jackasses in the service, too, you know. I met a guy once, and I said, what's your name? He said, Tex. I said, where are you from? He said, New Jersey. <laughs> and Cheyenne is from Anaheim. And I'd like to introduce our speaker, who's Alabama, and she's from Hollywood. Thank you. You're a good-looking bunch of people. I'm glad I'm one of you. My name is Alabama. I really have another name. It's Evelyn. But they couldn't remember it where I sobered up. They were nearly all as sick as I was, so they started calling me Alabama. And I like it. Because the sickest one can remember it, and I like for them to call me to remind me what I was and where I am now. I'm glad to be here, but I have to be very honest with you, I'm glad to be anywhere. <laughs> I'm not only glad to be here, I'm glad to know where I am. I'm glad to have arrived on the day I was supposed to. And best of all, tomorrow I'm going to know where I've been and with whom. And that's a switch for me. That's a switch for me. I drank long enough until I died and was reborn again, too. Oh, I'm going to start on the... Somebody says I don't ever get sober, but I talk about it all mixed up because that's the way I am. But uh, I've been 20 years sober, and you need not be a bit impressed about it because I'm impressed enough for all of us. Because I was the kind of gal that couldn't stay sober 20 days. And for me to stay sober a day at a time, 20 years, is a miracle. And if I can do it, anybody in this world can do it, because you couldn't get any sicker than I was. I came to you, though, oh, 21 years ago, but I think I'll tell you just a little bit about me as a child. But I'd like to tell you before I started <clears throat> that when I quit blaming people, places, and things and took the full responsibility for my actions, I started getting well. So I don't think what I'm going to tell you really has much to do with my being an alcoholic. I was born in a little village in Waverly, Alabama, with all the security a girl can have. My family had founded the town. Uh, they bought it from the Indians for a few strings of beads. And when I was uh, young, I figured that they, uh, we got cheated. <laughs> I lived in the same house until I left to go to college, so I knew what it was to have security. My father owned a great deal of land there. I was one of seven children. There was a lot of love in the home. Some of us became alcoholics and some of us didn't. One brother quit because he saw no future in it when he first started drinking. My eldest brother died of alcoholism. 
But they didn't put it on his death certificate. They put uh, a kidney failure, I believe. Uh, they didn't put it on there because he was a landowner, and he was an officer, and he was a gentleman. But we started telling the truth in my family about things. We say my brother died of alcoholism. We don't keep the disease in the closet in the more, anymore. My dear old mother, who is nearly 90, tells perfect strangers that didn't even know I had a problem that I'm in AA. And she very likely tells them I'm pastor. So if you need her, don't tell her you're different. <laughs> don't tell her I'm just another drunk like the rest of you. Uh, but it helps. You know, she took people for a while into the home and sobered them up and sent them to AA because she just loves this program. I have a sister who is sober without AA. I have a sister who came to AA and remains sober sometimes for as long as two years. But she starts taking those little, quote, non-habit-forming pills. And invariably, she doesn't like those tranquilizers, and she goes back to the great tranquilizer, alcohol. I spent one hour talking to her doctor about why she couldn't take those pills. And as soon as I left town, he gave them to her again. But that has to be our choice. That has to be our choice whether we take them or not. Uh, personally, I never liked them. I found alcohol young and I stuck with it. I had a love affair with alcohol for 20 years. That's one reason I'm so impressed about being sober 20 years. I've been as sober as long as I drank. And I think that's great. And that makes me salty. And that's the last conscious lie I'll tell up here. <laughs> that's a nice age, isn't it? That's a nice age. I was 39 when I came to you. And I don't feel as old as I did then, and that was 20 years ago. So I'm 59 years of age, and I don't feel it, and that's all that matters. I'm so happy about my sobriety. Uh, I don't know why I drank really, except that I liked it. I liked the very first drink I had. I liked the taste of it as a child. Uh, I drank socially for a while, and then I passed that line. It's a, uh, it wasn't because we didn't have love and good principles in our home. I was raised practically in the church. Uh, it wasn't for any of those things. I don't know whether I inherited their tendency or not. But to me, it doesn't make any difference. To me, the thing that makes a difference is what am I doing about that alcoholism? What am I doing? Oh, I have some brothers that drink socially, and they handle and it still, and they're older than I am. So who knows what happens? Oh, I had a good life. I always wanted to excel, though. Always wanted to excel. I didn't want to be mediocre in anything I did. I always felt that's the reason I drank so much. I never did things in half measures. I went away to college, and I quit because I it was during the Depression. And I told a lie so long that I quit because uh, I didn't have the money to finish college. It is a lie. I wasn't excelling. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, because my daddy uh, could still borrow money at the uh, bank, we had uh, assets. And uh, I went to work for an uncle. My daddy didn't want me to go out in the business world, but I worked for my drinking uncle. And they didn't vote me woman of the year in business the first year I worked. And I thought, oh, I don't like this. 
So me with my mind, I was going to make a good marriage. And I'd show them. I don't know who in the hell I'm going to show. I just don't know, but I was going to always show them. I was always going to show them, and I don't even know what I was going to show them. Oh, uh, not too long ago, an aunt of mine was elected uh, uh, to a member of Pusu of American Women. And not only did they put in the book what she had done to make her eligible, but they put in the book the things that she was eligible and belonged to, and about my ancestors and so forth. And I thought, I just that decided after I read that list that they are the ones that I'm trying to show. When I used to get drunk, I said it was because I was Scotch, English, and Irish, and they fought all the time. There was the English in me that was firm and proper, and the Irish in me that wanted it. Let's get there. Let's get into action. Let's get it going. And then the Scotch in me that was a little uh, careful with money, and the Irish, I'd throw it all away when I got drunk, you know. But I met a man that I truly loved. He was the only man I ever wanted to marry up until that time. And we were married. And I was married to him 16 years until he died. No matter how much I loved him, I wasn't a good wife. Because, you see, I started a love affair with alcohol at the age of 19. And I remained true to it. That's the reason I didn't take the pill. I remained true to it long after it jilted me, but by this time I was so sick, I didn't know I'd been jilted. But I did love this man. All I was capable of loving anybody but the obsession to drink was far greater than my love for him. And I've married, suffered. If I'd known a lot of things I know now, uh, for instance, my husband uh, didn't like the way I drank, at first even, because I drank too much. Uh, I remember that he was entertaining his staff at his mining camp one night, and I knew I was going to pay that right in my plate. You know, this is when I was engaged to him, so I think, uh, fake the heart attack. I never could think like other southern women. It was a shame. But I faked the heart attack. And on the way, when he was taking me home that night, he explained to me I just wasn't going to fit in his plans at all. You know, that uh, I couldn't, uh, that, that he couldn't be married to a woman that would drink too much on such occasions, you know. And I had, had so much to drink, I didn't even care that he wasn't going to marry me. Either fortunately for me or unfortunately, he came back that night and apologized for what he said and said he did want to marry me. I wondered often what it would have been like if he hadn't. He was not responsible for my drinking, but he made it very easy for me to drink. We were comfortably sick. He liked for me to travel with him. I didn't have any home duties except to be his hostess and a good wife. And... It was very easy for me to drink. When I got to the point where I drank so much that my friends did not accept me in one place that we lived, I always knew that in consulting mining work that we'd be transferred and I could make some new friends. But what I wished I had known more about was uh, how it was affecting my life. My husband suggested later in our marriage that he just wasn't going to sleep in the bottle, in the bed with a bottle. Well, I got into the point where I was afraid to put my bottle on the table, bedside table. I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to get up and get it. I was afraid of having a convulsion. 
And to my knowledge, I never had one, but I had DT. And I knew I was going to need that bottle, and I wanted to feel it close to me, because that's where my security lay. And my husband refused to sleep in a bed with the bottle, and I thought it was narrow-minded about it. But he suggested that I either get rid of the bottle or move him into the guest room. Now, I told you I love my husband, and I did. But you know, I moved him into the guest room. I moved him into the guest room. Girls are sure ruining your sex life. Don't quit breaking. <laughs> everything gets better when you're sober. <laughs> you can do everything better than you could when you were drunk. It's not what you give up, it's what you get. Well, anyhow, uh, my husband died when I was up. Before he died, though, I had made hospital after hospital after hospital. But I never was in a... We never did call anything its right name. Especially me and the doctors that, and my family. None of us called anything at that time by its right name. I was in a many, many hospitals where they didn't take alcoholics. For diagnostic work. For migraine headache. For trifacial neuralgia. I'd like to tell you that I haven't had migraine headache and trifacial neuralgia since I was about six months sober because those are diseases of the emotions and the nerves. And somehow or another, I haven't had them since I've been sober, since I've changed my thinking. But uh, I was in one hospital after another. I thought I was awfully smart the way I was feeling and dealing, fooling the doctors, fooling the nurses. They'd bring me those pills, those sleeping pills, those waking up pills, those tranquilizers and all those things. And I didn't really want them. What I wanted was alcohol. And I had some doctors that didn't want me to drink. They never talked about me being an alcoholic, but they disapproved of their patients drinking in the hospital. So, uh, and they didn't bring me any. And uh, so, I would find, I would find racist. Uh, that I could say, you know, I don't like these pills. I don't like the effect of them. I don't want them. And, I, and in fact, I throw them away. And they said, what do you do with them? I said, well, I flush them, you know. If they make me put them in my mouth in their presence, then I just go and spit them out. I really didn't like them. I didn't want to mix them with the whiskey. And uh, I, so I always found somebody that had somebody awfully sick at home that needed those pills. But I always stand with an addict that wanted those pills, you know. And the minute they get them in that little hot hand, I said, now, would you be so good as to take this check and bring me a bottle in and check every afternoon and see if I have enough for the, or whether I need another bottle the next day. Now, my sponsor, I thought I was feeling and dealing was real smart. My sponsor told me later that you call that blackmail. Well, now, you know, my mother and my husband said I was a wonderful woman, except I drank too much. And I believed them. I didn't think I had these kind of character defects. And I think blackmail is a strong word. But uh, I had five sponsors, and they all used it. You know, they backed each other up. My sponsors were not very gentle with me and with my feelings. I don't think they knew how sick that I was. But by God, I stayed sober after I got them. After I got them, and I loved every one of them. And those that are alive and of my sponsors are still sober. And those that are dead died sober. But 
But they knew how this program worked. They really knew and they cared what happened to me. Well, I was to go all over the United States and every town I was in, the first thing I'd do, I'd try to meet the doctor socially so I'd make my connections and could get in the hospital. But you know, I got a feeling that my neighbors and friends knew I had a problem. So I thought maybe it would be better if I stopped going to hospitals and ambulances. And that maybe people would think something was organically wrong with me. God, you don't know how crazy those doctors would find that there was something organically wrong with me. And they'd let my husband pay them and they'd remove it by surgery and I'd be like everybody else. And could drink like normal people. They never do find it. They always said organically she's strong. You know, but she's emotional problem. But, uh, my husband, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I'd known I was an alcoholic since Jack Alexander wrote the article for the Charity Evening Post. I was so firmly convinced that I was an alcoholic that I tore up the copy of the magazine and burned it. And I prayed and prayed hard that they'd be out of it at the news channel before we got in the city. And that my husband would never know I was an alcoholic. Because I had a feeling that if he knew I was an alcoholic, he would know I wasn't supposed to drink. You see, my husband didn't know it was the first drink that got me drunk. He thought it was the second fear, you know. And uh, he didn't know that at all. But I was getting an inkling that that was the problem myself. And, but anyway, about the ambulances. So I called the ambulance. I had doctors. I called them to describe my symptoms, and they said they would call the hospital at once and for me to get there at once. And I said, would you please send me an ambulance? And they would. And uh, I described some symptoms so perfectly that I'm sure that we did a few surgeries that weren't necessary. <laughs> I don't think I was so neurotic. I just think that I had to get in there, and I heard somebody talk about some symptoms, and I used them, you know. I'm pretty sure we removed one or two things that weren't necessary. <laughs> and then what was the drinking problem either? But I had a thing about ambulances. I didn't want to lay down and back. I was afraid I'd die. So I insisted I sit up front with the driver. <laughs> now, when a doctor has called for the ambulance, they don't want to do anything, you know, to hurt the patient. And I had never ridden in the back of an ambulance that I got sober. And I didn't lay down then. I go along with people who've taken overdoses and so forth. So I've really never been on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance because it wouldn't, it wouldn't go that way. It wouldn't go that route. I got to the point I used them like taxes. <laughs> but uh, I found this band's sanitarium. And you know, I liked them because I didn't have to lie. I didn't tell it as much as some of them did about what they had done. But uh, I didn't feel quite as guilty about my drinking because I met people like you when you were drinking. And you had done the same sort of things that I had done. You know, I thought about doing, or I was thinking about doing soon. And I, I was more comfortable with you. But, uh... And I, I didn't do too well in these sanitariums. I've gotten forth an awful lot. Because, see, I didn't have any desire to quit drinking. I just had a desire to quit hurting. 
I just had a desire to get my husband off my back. He threatened to cut off my bank account. And I don't know how to operate in those days without one. You wouldn't be done, though. <laughs> I would. <laughs> uh, but I was in Dr. Shara's and Riverside Drive so much. We called it Shara's Drive. But uh, I asked him if I couldn't keep my clothes there in the closet. And, uh, you know, so I wouldn't have to pack. I was living in uh, Nevada at that time. And, you know, it wasn't always convenient to pack when you were that drunk. I was telling some of them last night over at Duffy's that uh, I was there every time the two uh, men were there. And uh, the three of us were great friends. One was a young businessman. We were all in our cities who had become very successful. He had not inherited the money, too. It was by his brains and his wrong that he had made this money. The other was an inventor. Two of the brightest men I've ever known in my life. And we used to call up and say, have the others come in? And they said, no, but they're you, Alabama. Come on, we'll tell them <laughs> that you're here. And do you know, since I've been sober and I came back out to California, I found out that the inventor died of Rhino's death in the uh, desert. The last that anybody has heard of this man that I drank, other man I drank with, was that he was under, literally under the bridge down in the Venice area. And we hadn't heard from him in 12 years. And we assumed that he is either dead or incarcerated for life. He had lost everything that he had. It makes me wonder why was I sad. We drank exactly alike. We all three were equally as funny. We all thought we were a little bit smarter than the rest of them that came in the sanitarium because we could always get somebody to make the run for us. And we could drink without people knowing it. And we thought we were just a little bit special. But we were special. We were the three sickest there. <laughs> so when I was there, a man who was mad dead but died sober, who'd been through this institution, uh, came over and asked us if we would like to go to a meeting with him at the North Hollywood group. Well, I not I needed to get out of that hospital because I didn't like the way the doctor was sobering me up. Uh, he found out that I'd never been on pills, and uh, so he gave me a little whiskey, but he didn't give me all I wanted, and I needed more to sober up with. So I said I would go. And I went, and on the way, I told him that I wanted to stop and get a bottle, that I needed a bottle, that I did not want to quit drinking. I just wanted to quit hating so much. And he finally told me, as he saw that I was determined, that Alcoholics Anonymous was not for people who needed it, unfortunately. It was for people that wanted it. And that if I would prefer getting a bottle to getting sober, that that had to be my business. So he stopped, and I got two bottles of vodka. You know, that kind that doesn't smell. <laughs> and he took me to the meeting at North Hollywood, which is now my home group. And the first thing I noticed was a tacky, deeky little sign up there that said, We care. And I thought, Who in the hell cares whether they care or not? 
and besides, it was on the back of a, uh, a beer sign that flick, flickered on and on. You know, if the bed goes out in that now, I can't stand it till we get another one. That's the prettiest time in the world to me. I've got things that are covered up at North Hollywood that have put little signs just like it in the clubs that they are in. The things that I dislike the most that night are the things that I'm most fond of now. So I went there, and I'm certain that had I had an open mind that I would have gotten the message. But instead, I made frequent trips to the restroom, and I had open pores. And I heard just what I wanted to hear. I've never had to go to the restroom that often since then. And I you know, that, uh, I was just back and forth that night. I heard people talk about being in jail. And I was so funny that I didn't realize that the only reason I hadn't been in jail was because I was a detected drunk. I wrote checks over $1,000 that went good. My husband covered them. My brothers covered them. My daddy covered them. And then when they all quit and my husband and my father died, the banker covered them. But I was younger then. <laughs> I was a protected drunk. I didn't, I just forgot all about the reason I hadn't had a 502. I had, 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 had to have it explained to me what a 502 was. My husband had put a chauffeur at my disposal in my early 20s because he knew the condition I left the house in, but he never knew what condition I would come home in. And the chauffeur was instructed to keep the keys no matter what I said. So I didn't drive, so that's the reason I didn't have a 502. And it wasn't necessary for me to steal. I learned later, but I did anyhow. But I didn't call what I did stealing. I borrowed things. You know, but my sponsor said, uh, that that was stealing. Like I never did tell the people I borrowed them from. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, like if I ran out of 50, uh, I'd go over and they run at home and get a bottle out of their uh, pantry. You know, but I never mentioned it to them because I didn't want them to know that my husband was locking out of the fly up. You know. So the things that I stole, I didn't need to because I didn't, I had the money to buy it with. And so, and they talked about going to jail. And you know, and then they even mentioned penitentiary. And you know, I never had been around with people socially that spoke of being in jail and penitentiary. And I thought, well, this is a wonderful place for people like that to be. After I'd been sober a little over two years, I would be asked me to go to the jail with her. Then they asked me to go to Antonio Island Federal and so forth. And do you know, uh, at some of the meetings that I'd go to, the inmates would talk first. And then the guest speaker would talk. And I identified best with these girls. I know that for the grace of God and the protection I had, I would have been right there. Because you see, when I wanted something, I wanted it yesterday. The fact that it didn't belong to me wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. I was the kind of girl, if I was in my dry county, I thought nothing of chartering a plane and going to a wet county. 
I thought nothing of writing in the bad check because somebody had always covered my check. But you see, I would have stolen the car. I would have taken it across the state line, but I had a car. It wasn't necessary for me to do the things that they did. But if it had been necessary for me to have done it, to have stayed drunk until I was 39, I now know I would have done it. In fact, my sponsors have explained to me I did more than it was necessary to do to qualify. <laughs> Putting it mildly. Uh, but I realize now that if I ever believe that I am not capable of doing anything that any other alcoholic has ever done, that I may have some drinking left in me and have to go out there and prove that I can do it. You see, I know I can because a man took a bottle of whiskey from me away from me. Two different men have in their lives. I tried to incapacitate both of them because that whiskey was my security. That was my life right that minute. And you know, you had a fight to live. I think I would have killed for a bottle if I had been stronger than they were because I didn't think about what I might do and damage to them. It didn't make any difference. I wanted that drink and I wanted it now and I wanted that bottle in my possession. I think I would be capable of killing for a drink if that was the only way I could get one. You may think this is harsh, but for me, I have to believe this way. I have to believe this way. I have to believe that I could do anything anybody else did. If I should drink now, I wouldn't be the protected drunk that I was, because the people that protected me are dead, and I would hate to think of what I might do to stay drunk. And besides, I identify with these girls. I identify with every girl I've ever talked to since I got real honest with me. I didn't like you girls when I came in here. I didn't like you, nor did I trust you. But I found out it was because I didn't like myself, and I didn't trust myself. But I have self-respect now. That's possibly the greatest thing that I have gained in this program besides my sobriety. It's self-respect. And since I respect me and like me, I like you. And I'm proud to be a part of you. I'm proud to call you my sister. I never did dislike the men drunk or sober. <laughs> there wasn't any problem there. And I still love you. And if I ever quit, then I'm ready to die. But, so I went to this meeting, and I thought it was great for those that needed it. Jane reminded me that she went. That she wants about my second meeting with me. But I didn't want what you had. I wanted to quit hurting. I wanted to be a social drinker again. But you see, what I didn't know, I'd already passed that line. They couldn't even keep me sober in the sanitarium. So my husband called my brother back in Missouri and asked him if he'd fly out and help with me. And he came out. They put a private nurses with me, but that didn't do any good. I could keep the bottles and get drunk still. My brother, though, was pretty smart. He put me in a hotel room, a suite, and all the doors were locked and the windows were locked, and I had to go out through his door. Now, they could him if I got up in the night, so he got me sober enough to take me to a very fine diagnostic in Beverly Hills. 
God had my husband and my family born again to find something organically, socially acceptable wrong with me. They went to any length and I could retire right now if I had the money. I had seven doctors during this period, all special. Seven doctors. But you know, they couldn't find anything organically wrong with me. My husband and brother asked for a written diagnosis and prognosis. And I love the line where they said that alcohol was not my problem. But it was a result of my problem. But you know, he was right. I wasn't drinking that day. Alcohol's not my problem now. Because I haven't had a drink in 20 years. But if I took one drink, it would be my number one problem. And for you that are new, it is your number one problem. Have to take care of that before we can take care of anything else. But now that I'm sober, alcohol is not my problem. I'm the problem. Me and my thinking, thinking. And I try to do that. But I'm working on those problems. That's the reason I continue going to meetings. That's the reason I continue going. But if I took one drink, my number one problem would be alcohol. I don't want to drink today because I never had it so good. I don't like being sober. But you know, I was a very active drunk. So I've been active in AA. As you give it to me, I try to give it away. And that's all the book asked of me, is that I'd be willing to give it away. I basically I do anything, it's of no importance, it's whether I'm willing to do it or not. And I have been willing. I have been willing. Well, the doctor suggested that I be put in St. John's Hospital. And that they would run through the test and he'd call them through the specialist. You know, they even get an EKG. And all of those kind of things. So finally he told me that he was going to have to treat me for the trifacial neuralgia and the migraine headache. And could I quit drinking during that period of time? And I said, I don't know, I've never tried. <laughs> and he said, well, would you be willing to take an abuse? Well, I've never heard of it. And he said that he knew a doctor that had special, was specializing in giving it, so we called him another specialist. And he explained to me it could make me so sick, I could kill me if I drank on top of it. And they gave me many tests to see if they had the right dosage and everything. But they alive, it made me awfully sick. He said so sick I couldn't drink. But he's alive, as I regurgitated the first sip I drank. <laughs> I went in coma, but I drank. And it didn't kill me. And I don't see why they tell an alcoholic these kind of things, trying to scare us. Because I knew I could die if I didn't have the drink. So what difference did it make, you know? This is insanity to drink on top of that when you stand in front of the mirror and watch your face turn all those shades of red and green and yellow and your eyes turning color. And especially after you go in a coma and they have to break the hotel room door down to get you to St. John's Psycho. You know, and you come to and they've taken all the furniture out of the room and they... Uh, the grapes and everything, and you're on a mattress because I don't think I tried to kill somebody or myself, but that's where I was. But I continued to drink on top of Anna I drank on top of it five times. 
You know, if I had no other proof that I was insane, that would do it. But I've had some trigger before that. Oh. Well, the doctor brought me a psychiatrist in. And he decided I might be allergic to my husband. The doctor brought me a psychiatrist in, and he decided I might be allergic to my husband. <laughs> because he said I had a bad reaction every time he came around. Well, I did have a bad reaction because I felt so guilty. You know, I felt so guilty. I did react when he was around because he was a good husband. He was a good man. And I didn't like being what I had become. I'd broken all of the standards that I had set to live by. Wasn't so bad when I broke the standards that the church set, that my mother and daddy set, that my school teacher set. But when you break your own standards that you set to live by, it's rough. And I was feeling like a moral leper. And I couldn't talk to even the psychiatrist about it. I couldn't tell people I felt. I couldn't tell them about the guilt that I had. I couldn't tell them about the fear I had because I didn't know what I was afraid of. And I couldn't talk to God about it because I was in hopes he didn't already know. And I kept all of these things to myself. And we talked about the unimportant things. I finally got rid of the psychiatrist. But he told my husband to leave me in a hotel in Beverly Hills so I could see him often and my doctor often to send money so I would feel loved, uh, but not to come to see me so often while they were trying to work with me. Well, everything was going my way so good I got drunk again, you know, hit in the coma. Eventually I got sober, and I had been sober three weeks, and they, you know, in psycho. <laughs> I was there a number of times, too. Oh, that's another thing. I thought I was different from you because I'd never been in a state institution. And, you know, when I finally got over being so warm dumb, I realized the only difference in me and you is that I paid too much. <laughs> you know, just paid too much for the same uh, sort of treatment. Uh, so I went home. My husband and I were trying to make some sort of life again, and he died very suddenly of a heart attack. Now my security is gone. I'm not drinking, you know, for three, uh, like six weeks or better. I really don't know. I can't give you an accurate date. But I was not drinking. I was taking the interviews. I was trying to stay sober. But I'll be very honest with you. I was thinking about drinking. I was thinking about it. And I found out. I knew my husband, General, but, uh, in Las Vegas, but I had no idea the amount he had General because he had not sold anything. But all our stocks and bonds had, bonds had been borrowed onto the hill. So, I thought that we were very comfortably fit for life, but it would not be so. So you see, I had put my faith and my security in the bottle and the man and in money, and I think I named it in order, except maybe the money should have come second, if I'm to be real honest. And now it's gone, and all I've got to fall back on is the bottle. 
I faced over through the funeral. I excused myself from the guests, and I went in and I drank on top of the interviews. My friends and my family felt I did it because my husband was dead, and I'd like to tell you that was the reason. But I didn't accept the reality of his death until nearly a year later, because I stayed drunk all I could that year. And I didn't really accept the reality until after I sobered up for the last time of his death. I got drunk because I didn't know how to live without drinking. I didn't know how to function without drinking. I had never taken God in as a partner with me. After I had visited AA, I had been to AA in a number of places. This was to be the roughest year of my entire life. The very roughest year. I traveled a great deal because every time I was in one place, I thought if I went to another that I'd be more comfortable. And I traveled drunk. And everywhere I went, I ended up there with me and my thinking, thinking. I met a man sometime in this drunkenness, a man that, uh, liked me, I think. I really don't know. I was thinking all the time I was around him. And he asked me to come to New York and meet his family. They were out in Connecticut and come out there and meet his family. And we went out there and everything was fine while we were celebrating my arrival. But the celebration was over for them, you know, within 24 hours, and I'm still celebrating it. And the family all leaves and leaves the two of us there. Beautiful place you're out in hammocks listening to baseball games. And I'm just dying for a drink. My bottle that I brought in my suitcase is gone, and they had to save the drink that day, and I'm just dying for a drink. And I said to him as gay as I could, let's have a drink. And he looked at what, and he said, it's too early. <laughs> the hell it was. <laughs> he said, besides, we don't want to drink alone. We don't. <laughs> and... I thought I better, I, I didn't know that he was like this. I thought he drank like I did. But I realized it was weekend party drinking that we had been doing. So I started talking to him. I found out the only thing, we talked about religion, hobby, books, and so forth, to the best of my abilities, such as I was. And I found out the only thing we had in common was baseball. And as sick as I was, I knew the season was too short. <laughs> But I'll be very honest with you. I had evaluated that land. I wanted to get married because I knew I needed somebody to take care of me that I was no longer capable. But I knew that it was no need, that it wouldn't work because I'd get drunk and lost the whole thing. So I broke my engagement. The family seemed sorry about it until I got over my drunks. I couldn't get off of. And in front of his dear old mother, when he took a bottle away from me, I took a Coca-Cola bottle with the top on it and tried to beat him in the head with it. Fortunately, he was quicker and stronger, and besides, he had a chair that he could protect himself with. So they were very happy when I decided to go into New York. And I checked in the Roosevelt Hotel. I checked into that hotel. My brother told me five years after I'd been sober that the Waldorf Astoria called him and said, I owe him over a thousand dollars. He says, why are you calling me? And he says, well, she says she represents your company. You know, on that little form. 
and he said, the hell she does. She doesn't represent my company. And besides, she's of age. I'm not responsible for And he said, but what did she say? And the manager said, Mr. Robinson, I quote, she says that when she is well enough to draw her name to a check, that she'll do so. And when she's well enough to travel, she'll go back to Missouri and get in the boat, and when she's well enough to sign something there, that she will cover the check, period. And he said, will she do it? And my brother said, I, we don't know how much she has left. So far, she's paid a bill. I give you my word of honor, and I have tried to recall it since he told me that, and I went back to New York. I went all through that wall, though. I don't even remember seeing it that year. And I don't have any idea why I'd be over there owing them a thousand dollars when I'm checked in the Roosevelt, when I'm at hospitals getting sober, and when I'm sleeping over at the Pierre. You figure that. <laughs> but nearly all of this summer is a blackout. A doctor told me I wouldn't want to go in Bellevue and that he'd call AA and see if he could get an AA sponsor to put me in the Knickerbocker uh, alcoholic wing that I wouldn't like Bellevue. I didn't tell the sponsor and I didn't tell the doctor that I had been in many, many hospitals for alcoholism. I didn't tell them that the last one I'd been in, they wrote on my chart, no longer chronic alcoholism, but acute alcoholism. They were awfully good to me in New York, but I didn't want what they had. I didn't want to quit drinking. I was so insane, I didn't want to quit drinking. I ended up one day, that six weeks after I'd been in New York, I guess, in a uh, restaurant. It was around noon time. I'm sitting across the table from a man, and we're having champagne. And he looked at his watch and said, we'd best curry. You couldn't imagine hurrying when you're drinking champagne. I didn't like it, but I knew it was the thing to do on occasion. I preferred whiskey. And he said, well, we wouldn't want to miss our plane. And I said, couldn't we get another? I'm falling for time. And he said, no, we'd be late to our wedding in Miami. I give you my word of honor, I couldn't recall the man's name. I still have not had recall to my sorrow. I'm hunting for him. You see him, tell him I'm hunting. Uh, this, so I said, well, I best get back to the hotel and pack. But excuse me, I'll go to the ladies' room, too. I haven't seen him since. I do recall somebody whose name I don't recall introducing us. I do recall us talking to an aunt of an aunt of mine in Alabama, and he talking to, and she knew his family and told me they owned a beautiful hotel in Miami Beach. I do recall his wanting to get married in New York, and I explained that I thought they had some kind of waiting laws, and besides, I didn't have a truth, though. And I do recall him pulling out the largest wad of money I ever saw any man carry, and said, couldn't you buy a good one with this in New York? And I looked at this man and felt it that he would offer me money for a trousseau. And I'm in his bedroom. That's how phony I was. <laughs> but I thought I was better than. Better than what? Better than what? 
I haven't seen him since. In all seriousness, I believe he must be with us or dead, because he had to be as insane as I was to have asked me to have married him. I checked myself into another hospital, and it was to be this way. My family finally found me, brought me back to Missouri, a little place called Sedalia, Missouri. They were thoroughly disgusted, and they spoke of having me incarcerated for my own sake, and declared incapable of managing my uh, monetary affairs. And when they found out the condition that that was in, they couldn't manage them sober and good businessmen. And I knew they weren't going to do it. I knew they thought they thought they ought to do it, but they weren't going to do it. And I continued to drink. They told me they didn't see me often then. They had made a job in their business for me, but I didn't show up to work. Finally, I went to a doctor and he said I had to have breast surgery. And he was a little bit alarmed because I had had these lumps so long and had, had nothing done about them. And he told the family it might be a malignancy. My family all rallied around with money and love and thought, Poor Evelyn, this is the reason she's been drinking so much. This is the reason because she possibly knows she's dying of a malignancy. You know and I know, I knew the night before I went into that surgery, that God doesn't want to let me die of a respectable disease like cancer. <laughs> Then he was going to make me live and suffer, and that's what happened. It wasn't even malignant. Now, all of my family is rallied around with money, with specialist nurses, presents of all kinds, and it's given me, I'm sure, for everything in the past. And everything went well. They told the doctors to keep me there until I was strong and knew exactly what I was doing, to build me up. They always built me up so I could stay drunk longer. And to, you know, and they gave me IVs and they got me in great shape. A lot of people called on me and I was a little bit surprised. I didn't know they were alcoholics. They never told me they were. One man down the hall told me a story and I was greatly impressed about it. And I started thinking about what he had told me. It was like I'd never heard about AA before. And I didn't send out and got a bottle. I didn't drink then. I went in drunk, but I didn't drink for those three solid weeks. And I started thinking about not drinking anymore. But one day, nobody from the family came to see me. And that old feeling of impending doom returned. And my brother came, dressed in a business suit. And when I asked him to be seated, he wouldn't sit down. And he told me that the family had a conclave that day by phone, and those that could get together in person did so. And they had decided that every adult should have the right to live or die. And maybe they had taken it away from me by getting me to hospitals and getting doctors and nurses and specialists. And maybe I didn't want to live. And they were keeping me alive against my wishes. But they were going to give me the right back. And if I wanted to live and not drinking, that they would go to any lengths to help me, that I could move in with any of them. They'd do everything they could. But they told me if I wanted to die, I was going to have to die alone. They weren't going to be a part of it. You know, this was real relief with love. I'm pretty sure some family member got hold of them and told them how to release me with love. And God bless the Elanons. I do love every one of them. I knew my brother minutes. 
And he told me he did. But he told me they didn't want me in their homes anymore when I was drunk. He didn't want their children to see me in that condition, that they seemingly knew I was a sick woman and not a bad woman, and let's keep it that way. He didn't want his wife to have to be embarrassed at social events that I attended drunk. I'd been drunk places like the bishop's dinner. You know, and things like that. I was the only one I understand drunk there. Didn't know it at the time. I knew he meant it because he started crying unashamedly. He didn't even wipe the tears away. He, but as he left, he said, I guess if you're ever hungry, or if you're in jail, or if you need a doctor, that I would send help to you, but don't come to us. Stay away from us. And I knew he meant it. And I knew he loved me. And I knew it was the greatest form of love because, you see, I was sober at this time. And I made the decision, I didn't tell him, but I made the decision never to drink again. And I meant it. And it was the first time I'd ever made this decision. And do you know the day I left the hospital, I started getting drunk the first night. I didn't know I couldn't stop drinking by myself. And that was what was happening. And I called this man I'd met in the hospital. And he determined how much I'd drunk, and he told me I could stop and not get into trouble with it. And that I could go with him the next night, right around the corner from where I live, to an AA meeting. And I did, and on the way up, I said, don't tell these people I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a low town of 26,000, and if they hadn't been downtown, they'd seen me drunk. So they asked for the raise of hands. He'd already gotten but up. Uh, of the L and women, they made it a joint meeting because they thought I'd be uncomfortable with just men. And uh, they asked for the race of the alcoholics, for the L and members, for the family members, I think they were called in. And I didn't raise my hand on any chance. So finally the leader said, if there was a non-alcoholic woman there, would she please stand up and introduce herself? And I stood up and I introduced myself. And I told them I'd come to commend them for the great work they did in the community. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I felt so funny that I wanted to regurgitate right there on the floor. And on the way out, I told him because I didn't want to embarrass my family, the reason I had done that. But I knew better. I knew I was a liar and I knew I was a phony. And I was a girl who had had integrity in her life. And I didn't like being this way. And I went home and I laid one on. And I went back and I told them I needed help. And I continued to go back, but the thing I didn't continue was not drinking between meetings. And if any of you are new, it won't work if you don't quit drinking. We can't help you if it doesn't work if you won't quit drinking. But I drank between meetings and I went back to the meetings. I didn't do one thing they told me to except keep coming back. I drank between the meetings. I didn't call them when I wanted to drink. I didn't ever get in touch with any of them between the meetings. I went to the same sort of places. I continued to think the same way. And I continued to do the same things I did drunk. And no way could I stay sober. Eventually, I got sick and tired of this routine. And I decided that I would drink until I died, until I had all I wanted, until my family had me incarcerated. And none of those things happened. Obviously, I didn't die. I was just born again. I haven't come down about that. I'll tell you later. But uh, 
My family didn't have me incarcerated. And I've never had all I wanted to drink after I took that first drink. You know, I was the kind of drunk that, you know, when it was coming out of my nose, I'm still trying to get one down my mouth. You know. But see, the beautiful part of it is, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. I don't need to drink. And I won't need to drink as long as I try to work the principles of this program. In passing, I'd like to, the old timers already know it, but for you, newcomers, we don't work it perfectly, but the willingness and the crime will keep us sober. It will keep us sober. I didn't call anybody. Instead, a girl called me and asked me if she could come over. And I said, Ruby, I'm getting ready to go to work. I haven't been to work a month. But I've been dressing all day long and undressing and getting in the tub because I'd have to take a drink because I couldn't get my blouse buttoned. That was an excuse that day. I was pretty low on excuses. And Ruby came over and asked me to go home with her. Both she and her husband were alcoholics. And I said, Ruby, I'm not through drinking. And she said, I know it, Alabama, but we're afraid for you to be alone. I burned the mattress and endangered my life and the other people in the apartment building's life. And I said, Ruby, I would die if I didn't have some more to drink. And she said, I know it. We'll give you what you need. She took me home, brother. I don't remember much that happened there. But people from AA that looked like you came to see me. And they took turns about trying to feed me and nursing me and talking to me and sitting up with me. I think I was there 48 hours or something like that. I don't remember a word you said. I just remember how you looked. And I wanted to be like you. I wanted what you had. I never wanted anything as much in my life. But I was afraid it was too late. And I told the man that I'd met in the hospital the next morning that I wanted to stop drinking, but I was scared I'd die if I did. And he said he understood. And he told me that was a little place in Independence, Missouri. That there was a little place run by some volunteers in AA, managed by a man named Walt, who had been sober a few years. And he told me he'd see if he could get me in. They didn't often take women there because they didn't really have space for them. And he called and Walt said, if she truly wants it, we'll make the space. We'll make the space for her, but it's going to be awfully hard to get women to take care of her because we don't have many women sober in this group. And they took me there. And to show you again how funny I was, I held them up to get dressed in the little blue suit with the hat on and the white gloves. It was so important always that I looked like a lady because I knew I wasn't anymore. Since I've been sober, the wonderful thing of it is, it's just important that I look like a woman now. And that I be a woman. And all I really want to be is a good woman. And the thing's benefits occasionally I'm called a lady. And I like it. I like it. Uh, I wear the gayest colors I can find most of the time because I was often in black and brown and blue because it was so important what people thought about me because I didn't have a good opinion of myself. But now that I respect myself, it's a fringe benefit if you like me. But if you don't, it has to be your problem. Because I like me. It's the best I've ever done. And I like me, and I'm comfortable with me now. Thank God, through your help, I have become comfortable with me. So I went to this place, 
and they tapered me off. Let me describe the place to you. I've just been in the loveliest place, the finest rehabilitation place I've ever seen for alcoholics over at Duffy's. This little place was over a store, an empty store. The nearest thing that Independence, Missouri had to a skid row. There were rats in the kitchen. There were no curtains. There were no shades. It was up on the second floor. There were no rugs on the floor. The tables were homemade. The chairs were old sofas that people had given away. Oh, the bed wasn't particularly good and they didn't have a change of linen. You had to get your sheets washed before you got back in bed. But you know it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life because of the people that were there. There were people like you, people who were sober, people who wanted to help a drunk like me. And they welcomed me when I came in there. And they tapered me off of the alcohol. And in 36 hours, I was the happiest girl in the world because I thought I was going to be like you. And then I went insane. And for five days and nights, they didn't know whether that my heart could stand the adrenaline that was pumping so fast could stand the stress. And they didn't know if my heart could stand it, if not, I would come out of it with a wet brain. And I fluctuated from sanity to insanity for five days and nights. And they called a man who is now dead, but he was a member of AA, Dr. Mason, who had treated over 5,000 alcoholics successfully, most of them. And they called him, and he used the right treatment for me. He said that I should be in a regular hospital where they could, uh, you know, have better facilities, but he said I'm afraid she'd die fighting the restraints that they would put her in there. But I must warn you that she could kill. If she goes totally insane, she might try to kill one of you, and she could kill a man twice her size in this condition. And I said, Doctor, you forgot where you got me. You found me in this condition trying to beat my brains out in a jail, and you took me to your home, and you took care of me. He says, I'll stay with her. And for five days and nights, this man named Walt, another alcoholic, stayed with me. And he literally loved me back to life. He kept telling me, I didn't, I recall part, not all. But he told me over and over and over to pray, to pray for God to restore me to sanity and sobriety. And he told me I didn't have to escape in insanity. That I could face the world, that I could accept the reality of living that he had. He told me his story time after time, and I think that's the reason I tell my story so often. Because he gave me the encouragement and the hope that I needed by telling me what he was like, and that he too had been just where I was, and that with the help of the doctor and God as he understood him, he had been restored to sanity and later to sobriety. And the miracle happened. The miracle happened. There wasn't any flashes of light or any great thunderstorms or anything. I'm just in the bathroom and I think it's a marvelous place to get old, rid of the old. <laughs> get some new. And it was as if God said to me, and I know now it was the voice within me, said, you don't have to be insane. You can get well, and you can be sober, and you can be like these people. 
And since that very moment, I have known that no matter what happens, I don't have to drink. I don't have to drink. I've learned, I, it took me a long time to sort of get well because I was sicker than most, but I've learned that it's not important to me what happens. It's important how do I accept it. How do I accept it? A lot of things have happened since I've been sober, some of my own making and some not. I was remarried in AA and was married for a year and a week. And this man was killed in an automobile accident. I loved this man very much and we were very happy. I couldn't stay sober then, but we could. We could. The first thing I did was I an AA member and you all came. And you all let me know that I had your strength. And I felt it. And I made it through that. I made it through the years to come. I made another marriage. And I made it out of need, which is not a good basis for marriage. I didn't want to be alone. I hated to admit failure and get a divorce. I hated to fail in any undertaking sober. But you told me I was not a failure. You told me I just failed to make a good marriage there. And neither one of us drank when we got the divorce. We're both sober today. You were with me then, but this was the time when I made up my mind that I was going to take one year out of my life and I was going to learn to live with Alabama Carruthers and learn to like her and learn to know my God that I had found again here. I had never lost faith. I had just lost trust in God. I quit trusting him, but I was going to learn to know me and him so that I would never be lonely again, and that if need be, I could live alone the rest of my life. And that's the way it is today. I'm living alone, but I'm never lonely, because I have a good conscious contact with God, and I have all of you, and I could I be lonely. I went to work because my sponsor said that I had to, that I couldn't be a parasite, they wouldn't let me take a job like a... Uh, you know, traveling sex care, and I didn't take shorthand with a man who was married. They told me that that didn't come in the category of work as we understood it in AA. <laughs> and uh, they got me a job clicking in a store, and that's a long story, but I worked myself up in that. When I was not making enough to live on, they saw that I ate steaks occasionally. They helped take my inventory every evening. I had to work through the meeting times, but there was a group of men that waited for me, and we had my meeting, and it consisted of taking my inventory for the day. And they explained to me that I, they wanted me to take the word fibbing out of my vocabulary, just say, I am a lie. I not like it, but that's the way they did it. And then that's when they taught me to say, I am a thief. They wouldn't let me take my inventory in paragraphs because they said, give them a sentence. I rationalized. So they made me say I was a thief and I was a liar and a few other things. And I said, but, you know, really, I didn't steal. And they said, what about when you went out with married men? And I said, but I just borrowed them. I didn't want them. But they told me to say you, I was a thief, you know, and they talked about all of those little things. And they told me that I couldn't accept money from home, that I couldn't be a parasite and stay sober, that that wasn't this kind of program. God, they were great to me. But you know, I got a halo and it got awfully tight. 
real tight. It's most unbecoming. You've ever seen a sober alcoholic with a halo? Watch out, trouble's coming. Fortunately, I didn't drink because I told them about it. I mean, I, it was it was crooked and they saw it. I went down to this little hospital one night after work. I had met a girl that came in that day at noon and I went upstairs to see her. And when I came down that night from seeing her with this halo, you know, a few, I said, oh, I am so glad I didn't go to the link. The poor girl get upstairs before I came to you. And Dick Robino that I love said, oh, then what you done, you ain't done. And I said, why, Dick? She told every one of us she was up to her. Got you. And Dick looked at me in utter disgust. Utter disgust. And he says, Alabama, for God's sake, ain't you go over that honest with yourself? And I said, Dick, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he said, don't you know the only difference in you and that gal upstairs is? You didn't need to, you didn't know you could sell it. And besides, you didn't need the money. So ever since he told me that, and I think maybe somebody's done something I haven't done, I just remember how stupid I was. God, it's been a great way of life. It's been a marvelous way of life. I told you that I had faith when I came here, but I had lost trust. And in my sobriety, as I'd been sober a while, I found because of I was doing things like I used to do when I was drinking, that I wasn't comfortable with myself. Now quit talking to God about the day. Now quit asking him to manage my life. And I felt guilty. I talked to you about it, and I talked to ministers about it, and I couldn't seem to work it out. And I got spiritual books, and I started reading it. And I knew that I was, you know, the book tells us there comes a time that there's no human power that can keep us from taking that first drink. And I knew if I lost this conscious contact with God that I was going to be a donor. And it concerned me. And I knew I had reason to be concerned or I would take a drink. And one night after I went to bed, I don't know whether I'd been to sleep or whether it was just before I went to sleep. Or it seemed almost like a dream. I remembered either an incident or the telling of an incident that happened to me when I was a little girl, three or four years old. They told me that I ran down the back steps, with 14 steps, and got away from my mother and father. And I ran into the path of the cows that were being brought in from the pasture to the lot. And the lead cow was a fractious jersey. He had a cat she wanted to get in there, too. And I got directly in the path of this cow. And they couldn't reach me. And it was too late to hurt off the cow. And they said I stood still. And I looked this cow straight in the eye. And said, you better not bother me. I'm Jack Robinson's daughter. <laughs> and the cow walked away. You see, I knew when I was a child who I was. I knew I had a genesis. And I thought, oh, God, thank you how simple it is. All I've got to remember is I'm your kid and that you love me. And I've just got to trust you like I trust, trusted my earthly father. And believe there's nothing that you and I can't do together. And it's been so simple since then. I've kept my faith just that simple. I'm his kid and he loves me. 
And I know he loves me. I'm aware of his love. And I know you love me because I love you. Thank you for asking me up here. Thank you for saving my life. Thank you for helping me to try to become the woman I want to be.